Uh, well, welcome back. Um, we are ready to get started. Uh, John Brooks is doing uh, double duty today. Uh, so he will be presenting now on HIV infection from the CDC perspective. We asked him to give a broader casting of, uh, of prevention beyond PrEP. The next talk is gonna be specifically on PrEP. So welcome back, uh, John Brooks from the CDC. Great. And this is this lavalier now working? Oh yes, very nice. Great. Hi, good to see you guys again. Where's the clicker? There it is under here. So I'm going to be talking, as Laura just said, about everything except for prep. But I will talk a little bit about a prep to set up Rafi Landowitz's talk right after mine. Um, I have again no financial relationships to disclose, and these are the learning objectives that you can review on your own later. So let's talk a little bit about some of the successes. We've actually been having a lot of success in the United States with controlling HIV. And in the five years between 2015 and 2019, we saw a sustained 8% uh, decline. And this is after having some extraordinarily high numbers. But it isn't a perfect picture in every single way. And um, what I wanted to first ask you was, what region of the United States, as we're going to get started, what region of the United States uh, accounted for more than 50% of new HIV diagnoses in 2019? Why don't you get out your Slido and go ahead and vote? And I'll remind you, you've heard three times now in these um, presentations, including one earlier, just before me, I think the Ada had one where she mentioned this. Um, so we'll see if people were listening closely. And I'll move ahead and bazinga, look at this 100%. All right. Has any audience ever gotten 100% other than are you alive and able to push the button? That's a remarkable, okay, fantastic. Thank you very much. And here, I'm gonna just show you a summary of some of the key problems we, that we need to think about addressing to further our success uh, in HIV control. Shown on the right is a figure that you saw a moment ago with Ada's presentation displayed a little differently of where HIV is concentrated in terms of new diagnoses. And 52% are in the Southeast region, mostly in the coastal states, but also a smattering of, uh, of density up there in the New York area, it's New York and Puerto Rico, I should note, and then also California. And again, I'll just remind you, it looks a little bit like the monkeypox slide, looks a lot like uh, sort of persistent issues we see with geographic disparities. Um, in addition, there are these um, five issues on the, um, I guess, the left side of the screen that I want to bring to your attention. First, that we are seeing incidence has been declining, uh, but we are seeing uh, increased incidence in some groups or persistently high incidence, gay and bisexual men in particular, and persons who belong to uh, either uh, my, racial and ethnic minority groups that are Black, African American, or Hispanic and Latino. We also see a high, higher, higher than average prevalence in some groups. Again, MSM, but this is something we've known for some time, but also for the first time in transgender women. It's not that that's necessarily a new finding in terms of a new phenomenon, but we've been able to now collect surveillance data on a person's gender status, and we're able to now look at transgender. Transgender women are 14 times more likely. Uh, for, to have a risk, 14, let me reframe that, excuse me. 14% of transgender women uh, have been diagnosed with HIV infection, which is a remarkably high fraction for such a small number of persons in the United States. We still see large gaps in PrEP coverage, which I'll cover so that I can set up Rafi's talk, as well as lower rates of viral suppression as were highlighted in Ada's group, every uh, Ada's talk, but particularly in some groups, American Indian, Alaska Natives and Black African Americans. Uh, and then we're seeing increases of new HIV outbreaks, mostly around uh, injection drug use, uh, and related to the opioid epidemic that I'd like to spend a little bit of time discussing. So first, let's talk about PrEP. Our goal as a nation with the Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative is to get PrEP coverage up to at least 50% by 2000. 
and 25 coming at us fast. And we've done this, here, the, here are the data displayed by race and ethnicity. Uh, we're presently as a nation at 23%, and we've succeeded in one group, the whites are doing pretty well, they're up to 63%, but we are failing miserably at getting prep to the people who uh, need it the most. And we aren't doing a good job there. I hope we'll be able to talk some length we all do to improve prep coverage. Black African-Americans, Hispanic, Latinos are being left behind here. So are women. Only 10% of uh, women determined to be eligible for PrEP are getting it, despite the fact that in general, I might posit that uh, HIV uninfected women may be more likely to encounter the healthcare system than men. So there are plenty of opportunities to consider offering PrEP, but it isn't happening the way we'd like to see. Also, people who inject drugs, this is, a, this is becoming a, this is a persistent and unfortunate national problem. We saw historic declines in the number of HIV infections attributable to injection drug use over the decades with the advent of um, uh, antiretroviral therapy, particularly uh, highly active antiretroviral therapy, which I guess we don't say anymore. But that stalled in 2015. And even here, looking at the rates of diagnoses among PWID, it's beginning to actually creep up a little bit. I'll note that now one in 15 new diagnoses are uh, in a person who has injected drugs. And to remind you that the current cost of each HIV infection, park this number in your back pocket, is a half a million dollars of lifetime treatment. So each infection we prevent has an enormous price value associated with it. So prevention, this is a prevention, uh, really can uh, gain us a lot of ground. So this kind of really began to take off with an outbreak that was uh, first, of the, one of the big outbreaks that was first identified. There may have been others, but the first one that was really picked up was Scott County, Indiana. But after that, we've seen persistent other ones popping up all over the country, um, mostly in these areas in green that we assessed as two, in 2016 as being ripe for an outbreak, but not solely limited to them. Um, so this is an ongoing problem. So what are we doing about what are we doing about the things that we can influence to end the HIV epidemic in America? We work with our four pillars: uh, prevent, uh, sorry, diagnose, prevent, treat, and respond. And we do a, a number of things shown here. What I want to focus on today, uh, I'm going to ignore prep in the prevent pillar, and I'm going to ignore the. Um, I'll go back just to show you. I'm going to ignore the respond pillar because these uh, one is being covered by Rafi after me. The other is probably a better for a different talk. But talk a little bit about HIV testing, what we can do to link people to care, and what we're doing with syringe service syringe service programs to make them more accessible and successful. In terms of HIV testing, I think the big new news here, if you don't know it already, is home testing. Everybody here is probably perfectly familiar with doing a home COVID test, and hopefully this will translate to more and more Americans being comfortable doing a home HIV test. This is from a study called E-STAMP, not STOMP, like I talked about before, but STAMP, S-T-A-M-P, that looked at the uh, outcomes of persons who got home HIV testing kits provided and how, how many used them and how many uh, picked up HIV infection. It was a 12-month study with two groups randomized one-to-one. -one. one group um, received uh, four HIV self-tests and then quarterly could get those refilled if they wanted. And they were told to not only complete a survey, but to please share these tests with friends they think might benefit from an HIV test. Enrolled about 2,600 persons. Here are the data, and I'm going to walk you through them because it's a little bit of a complex slide. But in the top bar are all the participants stratified in two columns by those who got 
who did participate in the self-testing arm and those in the control arm. And by the way, those in the control arm were told at enrollment to please go get tested as you would normally do in your community, and every quarter received a reminder to do the same. Well, the first point here is that the people in the self-testing arm had twice as many positive new diagnoses, so they got more diagnoses. Further, look at their social network. They reached 2,152 people in their social network and got a percentage of positive tests not so that far different than the, those persons themselves. You know, it's kind of common sense that we, we swim in the pool of fish that we're used to, and these people are a wonderful way to help access those who may not have the benefit of knowing their status right now and could get the benefit of treatment early. Secondly, we looked at the subpopulation of persons who were testing for the first time in this study. There were 17%. And as before, not surprisingly, those in the self-testing arm tested at least once. So that's we're really glad to see such a high percentage. <clears throat> and it actually had some effect on those who, um, among those who had not previously tested, being told to go out and get tested helped. They about almost close to 50%, 46% got tested, but we did much better when we put the test in the hands of the user. Then when we asked the question, how many people did what we really wanted to do, which was if you're a high risk person to get repeatedly tested on a regular basis about every three months, so quarterly, much more successful in the people who had the self tests, they were more able, we believe, and they told us in interviews to repeat the testing at their convenience versus those that were just told to go and repeat the test. So as a result of this, CDC in during 2021 in the pandemic, put, put out 100,000 tests for free to see what we could do by shipping these out to the population in general, focusing on disproportionately affected persons in the epidemic, transgender women, and persons of racial and ethnic minority status. And it was a really, it was a real success. Um, the thing that I liked most about it was first, the number of participants who reported having never tested was higher than 17%. So we were reaching the people that we wanted to get with first time testing and 33% reported it having been more than a year since their prior test among those who had tested previously. So we're re-engaging those people who have, might be at high risk in the regular testing. We're doing net, what we're doing this year in FY23 is putting a million dollars into self-test effort in a five-year program called Together Take Me Home program, where you can go online and order an at-home test to be delivered, just like you could a COVID test until a few weeks ago, I guess we quit. Is it a government program for COVID testing end? I think it might have ended, I don't know. Um, hopefully, uh, HIV testing will remain uh, available. Let me move now to uh, engagement and care. Many of you may be familiar with the data to care model, which is a collaboration between health departments and clinicians like yourselves, where the health department used viral load and CD4 cell data reported to them to identify a person who appears to be out of care. They sent this to the clinic and say, hey, we think Joe Smith is out of care. Do you agree? And if you say, yes, Joe Smith is out of care, then the, it goes back to the health department who go out and find Joe Smith and try to bring him back into care. This is a pretty good program. It's been demonstrated effective, but boy, it takes a lot of time and effort. What if we did what the pharmacies do? Why don't we leverage pharmacies to help us here? You know, how many of you have a prescription and you've been called a week after you're late to your prescription is waiting, right? Well, why can't we do the same with antiretroviral therapy? And in, in Michigan, they did this really innovative program where they worked together with the pharmacist, the provider, and the health department. And the pharmacists were asked to identify people who'd missed their pickup of a scheduled refill on antiretroviral therapy within one week. And then if they still hadn't picked it up, they contacted the provider and said, hey, your patient didn't pick up their script. Could you give them a call? And if they didn't reach them at that point, then they turned it over to the health department who went out and tried to find Joe Smith and help him get back onto therapy. Well, how did these two perform compared head to head? 
It was a limited number of persons, 92 in the data to care arm, 195 in what was called the link up RX uh, arm. Um, but a couple of things are notable. And the bottom line here is that the link up had a higher yield at a lower intensity and cost. First, look at the number of staff required. It took two people to do, in the health department this is, two people to do the data to care program, one for link up RX. When you look at the total number of people contacted, there were more contacted in the link up RX and a higher fraction of those contacted accepted linkage to care. Well, we like that. That's exactly what we're looking for. And then the other metric that I like is the one at the bottom line. I'm spending money on these people. I got to pay their salary. I want to get as much bang as I can for my buck. It only took 15 minutes to investigate a case in the link up, up RX system because closer to the real-time data. You hadn't waited months and months for viral load to come in late. You had the person's phone number or email or contact information that was relatively fresh. You could get to them faster than you could in the routine uh, way of going about it. So we've promoted very strongly now this whole idea of pharmacy data to care. And CDC is uh, using real-time pharmacy claims now with insurance and Medicare, or we're not doing it. We're providing funding, excuse me, to health departments to do it. Uh, to use real-time pharmacy claims data from insurance and Medicare to ensure continuity and to re-engage patients in care. Third thing I want to talk about are syringe service programs, a topic near and dear to my heart. Um, I, have a, I believe very strongly that this is something that this is a critical intervention that can make a big difference. You know, they don't just provide clean needles. They also can teach people how to use naloxone to save their life or another. They provide education and training on a whole variety of things, including how to take care of wounds and make sure your wound care is covered. And they can provide referral for what the most important step is, opioid use disorder treatment. To, so you don't have to worry about injecting any longer. I'll just remind you, if you don't know this already, these are good data to try and park somewhere in your brain, that new syringe service program users are five times likely to enter treatment for substance use disorder and three times likelier to stop using drugs um, versus uh, PWID who did not enter treatment. And SSPs are also associated with a 50% reduction in the risk of HIV infection. So this is a demonstrated affected, effective prevention measure. Not only that, but sometimes people throw up a couple of barriers to you saying, oh, there's concerns about this program. You know, in my neighborhood, there were needles everywhere around that syringe service program. Well, there've been a couple of studies where they've actually looked at this and find that in contrast to expectation, um, in cities without an SSP, after the SSP was implemented, the presence of syringes in public places decreased by almost 50% because people were had to often bring back their syringe to get new ones, or you could put in a way for them to dispose of syringes safely. And they were vested in doing so, knowing that if, people started to see a lot of, they were instructed that if people are seeing a lot of syringes in the neighborhood, policymakers are not gonna like our syringe service program and it's gonna go away. So help us keep it running. And of course, I'll come back to the dollar argument again. If you're a policymaker, they save a ton of money. These are old data. So the values here, 234 million savings in Philadelphia and 62 million in Baltimore are actually probably out of date. We need to re reassess this now using that half million dollar figure I showed you. But what they did was they looked at the trajectory of um, infections due to uh, injection drug use in two cities where before and after the implementation of a syringe service program. And you can see in the blue line what the projected, statistically projected trajectory would have been had the program never been implemented and what they actually observed after implementation. And this same pattern has been observed over and over. So these save money. That's a bottom line for a policymaker. 
Problem is, they also create an awful lot of controversy. After the event in Scott County, Indiana, uh, and the institution of our recommendation to bring syringe service programs everywhere they're needed, which we now, uh, it, they can be uh, stood up pretty much in every state. You know, this just courted so much controversy. You can see from some of the exchanges here, and we're hearing more and more of this. So this is an intervention that, you know, really works and is going to be, is being threatened politically. Um, but there are some things we can do to make sure that both people who uh, suffer from uh, drug use or substance use disorder, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other pr problems can get taken care of in a way that I think is really uh, going to fu hope fundamentally change how we approach taking care of people, which is treating these as syndemics. Now, this is sort of common sense, if you will, right? When you see a patient in the clinic, you're not seeing the person parsed as over here's the viral hepatitis part, here's the HIV part, here's the STD part, one person has many disorders, but the way we've traditionally funded things, we've kind of created these divisions and we need to kind of bring back together um, everything into a single whole. So we believe that approaching these problems as endemics uh, is important. And these are epidemics that interact with each other. And by that interaction also increase their adverse effects on health communities, uh, the health of communities that face systemic, structural, and other inequities. And a great example are STDs. STDs increase your risk for HIV infection by two times. So by integrating my efforts to reduce STD infection helps benefit my HIV infection reduction. So we want to see these packaged together if we possibly can. The, uh, what we're doing at CDC is our, prevent, our HIV prevention funding guidelines and technical assistance now, we're all supporting syndemic approaches where diseases interact or connect. And we're doing it by first focusing on a set of settings. STI clinics are a great place, CBOs, health departments, community health centers, and syringe service programs, which can bring these different services together. Those services are testing and prevention for a wide variety of different illnesses, as well as linkage to treatment. And those illnesses include STIs, viral hepatitis, and HIV. And then to make it happen, we're making our funding flexible. Um, we, in, in our HIV division, we have core HIV infrastructure funding, but we're allowing it to be used for some other services that augment HIV prevention, like building up STI, getting hepatitis taken care of. We support health departments uh, with uh, specific funds for some projects, and we support linkage to other needed services. I'm sure many of you as Ryan White HIV AIDS providers are well aware that transportation food insecurity, housing insecurity are fundamental to people being able to stay engaged in care and get the services they need. Um, key things to address in any syndemic approach. You gotta meet people where they are. I think those of us who take care of patients know it. Focus on equity. Ada had that beautiful diagram, which is uh, summarized here on uh, raising people up rather than changing the, uh, where, pe uh, where people are. Put your money where your epidemic is. You, know, you need to know where the problem is and put the funding where it matters. If you don't have a, you know, to see what you can do to shift the funding to direct it. Got to use leverage as a public policy health tool. You all are informed providers who know the patients you're taking care of and can advocate on their behalf um, with legislatures in ways that I can't uh, by law to ensure that policies that may benefit them and benefit the community can be enacted. Things like syringe service programs, prep programs, all those kinds of things. And then prioritize innovation. There's a lot of amazing ideas out there. Let's take advantage of them. 
Um, benefits of syndemic approach. I think it's again common sense. You get holistic service delivery, increased efficiency and cost effectiveness, and reduces stigma, and supports a focus on policy and uh, state, state Department of Social Determinants of Health drivers. The other thing that I really like, though, is it improves your ability to be responsive in an evolving epidemic, because you're able to think across these different kinds of diseases in an integrated fashion. And it gives you a little bit more control over what's happening. You can address and you can address them using what we call a status neutral approach. So I wanted to touch on syndemics first, and then let me talk a little bit about uh, what uh, status neutral approach is all about. So this is a diagram of the concept of status neutral HIV prevention and care. And the principle here is that we're using the same approach to engage and retain people into a comprehensive care program. People are engaged either into um, cycles of care that are um, constructed to ensure that either they are going into a treatment pathway where their virus is suppressed or they're going to a prevention pathway where they're not infected, but systems are put into place to help them uh, get, take advantage of those tools that are available to us to suppress um, the risk for um, HIV infection. So on the one side, we're suppressing the virus, the other side, we're suppressing the risk. In these cycles where you're going around and around, you also can touch base and make sure that what you're doing is effective and identify them where there are opportunities where you need to provide those ancillary services to keep them engaged in care. That's a lot of theoretical discussion, but let me show you some examples now, starting with New York City's of how this has worked. And these are data from my colleague, uh, Dimit and my supervisor, Dimitri Daskalakis, terrific guy from New York City, uh, who was instrumental in introducing status neutral care into New York City. So what does it look like? Well, the first thing is you make it attractive to the client. So they want to come and see you and you don't talk about a sexual disease clinic. You talk about sexual health. You make people, you make it inviting and you make it status neutral. If you look at these ads, they're fun, they're colorful, they're catching your eye. They might be even a little sexy. And um, they talk both about treatment and prevention and the prevention benefit of treatment. It's all one thing. And we don't know in these pictures who's who, but it doesn't really matter because everyone can come to my clinic and get the care that's right for them based on their HIV status. Then in the clinic, people are segregated uh, to the services they need according to their HIV status. They're tested if it's not known. And then if they need PEP for an exposure or PrEP because of repeated exposures, they can get that. Or they could be jump-started on antiretroviral therapy if they've been immediately diagnosed. So you're able to provide the services that people need while across the board at the bottom, you're ensuring that everybody's getting STI screening and treatment. They're getting condoms because you need them no matter what your status is, partner services, and other services beyond just things related to HIV, emergency contraception, crisis counseling, substance use treatment, in addition to things like um, uh, assessment for viral hepatitis status, uh, screening for, um, I mentioned substance use disorder, excuse me. So uh, moving on, how do you make this happen? Well, in New York, they built it on the Ryan White care model. On the left is the Ryan White medical case management system they were using in New York, and they basically mirrored it into a, into a, what am I going to do for the HIV negative person? So my client with HIV has come to see me and her partner is HIV negative and wants services to keep them as a couple safe. And so they, they were able to provide systems to address the needs of both the positive and the negative person. Um, and the care coordinators and navigators in these systems had to learn both sides of the coin, if you will, to be able to manage 
uh, both people. So you were getting two for the price of one as well. How do you make this happen though, where we've created firewalls in some cases between, here's the people who can manage HIV, here's the people who can do prevention. You know, it used to be that division wasn't so hard, but now that we have biomedical prevention interventions, you need a clinical setting to deliver both, especially when we're delivering injectables that you have to come back on a regular basis. Well, Chicago's provided one nice uh, example of this. What they did was they said, look, we want to inter we, we're going to use our funding and we're going to integrate it across all the Chicago Public Department of Health, that's what CDPH stands for, uh, funding sources. We're just going to pool all that money together wherever possible, where the services are provided, we'll do it in a status neutral way, and we're going to take a syndemic approach where disease uh, detection and management are integrated. And they made sure that the portfolio of what they did aligned with all the different requirements of programs that were out there aimed at HIV elimination. And this is kind of a diagram. It's really just to show you sort of the creative ways, specific only to Chicago, but the creative ways that they took funding from different areas like funding that was designed for health equity, funding designed for housing, for, for funding designed for healthcare, and then a category we call service, other services, sort of um, navigator services, and bundled $43 million together to put healthcare at the top, supported by service guidance, health equity, and housing. Every jurisdiction is going to have to address this separately because these decisions are made at the local level. But I want you to know that at least at the CDC, and I'm presuming at HRSA too, Laura, that we're in favor of helping people integrate funding in these ways to use a syndemic approach to provide a status neutral um, method of getting into care. So uh, that's the end of my talk on this topic, and I'd be happy to address any questions that you have. Thanks. I better keep this right here. Oh yeah, can we see that? Yeah, good. Okay, so um, there are a couple of very specific questions about prep, but I think we'll leave those for the next presentation. So if you can re-enter them, because I don't think we can save them between presentations. So how do people access uh, home test kits for the federally quali qualified health centers to distribute? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd, be, I'd, I'd really like to ask Jim that because I don't really know the system through which uh, HRSA is distributing them. There is a website. I can try and find it and make sure I share it with you all that you can go and order them online. Um, and Can they order them in bulk? Ah, that's a good question. I think they should. Well, their home test. Uh, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I, that's a great question. I, I, I'm sorry I didn't come prepared to answer it, but let me get back to you on that. It's a, it's a really good one. I'll just add that most of the home test kit, this, this take me home test initiative is really designed for the individual to order the test to have it delivered at a place of their designation. But if there were a way to have uh, health centers uh, participate in that distribution, that'd be fantastic. So uh, there are some questions about the fact that if people are getting home test kits, then how are you tracking surveillance? And also, if you, uh, you know, what is the possibility of being able to start sending home STI kits? And like, I know there's some <laughs> regulatory stuff there. And once again, if we do that, then people, would they get their results immediately at home? Do they need to send it someplace else? How do yep. we then make sure they're getting treated, et cetera? So with at least HIV, HIV home testing, the, the, home te the first home test kit was uh, approved on the basis that we could show that people who get a positive result eventually come in to get a confirmation. The test result is only preliminary. It's not definitive. You have to come and get a final confirmatory test. And it's also a diagnosis that more and more, if we work our systems properly, people will feel safe coming in 
to uh, getting the confirmatory testing they need. We haven't seen a signal of people avoiding uh, getting confirmatory testing to the best of our, I mean, not, there are, will be individuals who do that, but when we, in, when we interview people and we talk about home testing, uh, we have seen and seen demonstrated that people will seek out care. I would love the idea that, and this is, by the way, in terms of our surveillance, it probably isn't messing around with our surveillance the way that COVID home testing could, because you can't get HIV care, which you hopefully feel like you want to get when you learn you have the infection, outside of a physician's practice. So our, our monitoring for HIV does not depend on home testing, but on confirmatory testing that goes to state health departments. So what about an example of PrEP, where you really want to make sure as that PrEP provider when you sent this home test home that the person's test was negative? Ah, well, th that's where you, if you're the PrEP provider, I mean, that's, a, that's one of the um, deals you have to manage, right? I mean, you're trusting the participant to tell you that I'm negative and to refill their PrEP. It's important that they understand very clearly that if there's any signal at all on the test, any possible line to come in and see me, and let's take a look at it. But I'd be curious to hear what PrEP providers' experience has been with people who may have had a positive at home but continue taking PrEP. Hopefully patients are carefully, um, are being carefully instructed that continuing PrEP while you have HIV risks inducing resistance and undercutting possible options for you if you need treatment. Um. So uh, I know, and one of the ways that I know one of the programs that, that we, we've talked to extensively does is they actually, the person has to send the, the, HIV, the, the HIV test kit back to get read by the provider. Yeah, and some places require photography or other or video, you know, uh, real-time video link testing. I mean, if you've got the time and the capacity to do it, that's great. But if you're in a situation where you have to depend on the person, maybe the best thing uh, would be to ensure they understand the consequences of not reacting to a potentially positive test. So in terms of out-of-care collaborations, people have run into problems around um, a confidentiality. Mm -hmm. And so how do you, how do you, do you ha how do you get around those issues if you're trying to find a person who's not in care? Uh, well, that part of that is setting up systems in advance where the health department and clinicians, and in the case of the pharmacy example I gave, you have put into place firewalls that ensure patient confidentiality. It's hard for us to work around some of the EMR systems, you know, every, and, and when the lawyers get involved, it gets especially uh, complicated. But I think we need to make clear to those persons who may be with best intentions, creating obstructions that may not that may not be necessary, that of the value to be gained by trusting the people who are engaged in that person's care to hold the information confidential. Yeah, and I know in some programs they do. As you come in, you sign that you're that you are willing to have your information shared if they can't reach you, or how exactly right. how they can reach you. Um, what about uh, how do you, how does CDC define out of care? That this person's commenting that their health department defines it as eighteen months. 18 months. I think, well, yeah, oh, I have to go back and look. I'm sorry. I think I thought we'd, we generally define out of care as I think more than six months as not having had a viral load or a CD4 cell count drawn. Uh, but it may take it, depending on the health department, how the reporting is going, it unfortunately could take 18 months till they learn that. But we're working very hard with our state health department partners that are in the HIV bureaus to ensure uh, real-time rapid reporting. We're, you know, as a nation, we're getting away at CDC from fax machines and actually going with electronic data now.
Speaking of electronic <laughs> data, do you think some of the um, in the link are up RX uh, mm -hmm. study that they were using text messages more than phone calls? And I know my children don't ever. Yeah, they did. Phone. No, they, they were using. That's why it was 15 minutes. It took them 15 minutes to figure out how to do the text because they're old like me. It's probably going to be less time. Uh, they were using they were using all the available tech. Part of the idea was they were using the available technology. And what we had heard was the reason it took longer in the data to care was, as I mentioned, the the, the validity of that information had faded over the period of time. They'd lost their phone, the email changed, they don't want to answer the call. Uh, so two questions. Uh, one was about how can um, participants uh, further advocate for SSPs when they have very restrictive state or local laws? And the second question is, how close are we to safe injection sites in this country? Wow. Well, the, the last question, I hope we are there, but we aren't, as far as I know. There are, I, I will say, there are one or two safe injection uh, sites operated clandestinely, and I don't mean that in a bad way, in the U.S., but they're places where they're being very careful about not disclosing the locations they can gather important data on how well they perform. And it's not something we're involved with as a federal agency. It's operated by uh, local academics. Um, the question around what can what can patients do? No, what can uh, the people here do what to you really can do. help Great. advocate yep. in a- You in can, a... or I can tell you very concretely what you could do. In Georgia, citizens in, introduced a bill to allow syringe service programs to be in to be a, something that the that funding could be used to support then you need to monitor the performance of the syringe service program keep track of how many people come in how many services they're going to what the hiv rates look like how many people are getting treatment show the value of the program sometimes we think if we just stand it up that's going to be enough but politicians get reelected and when they get when it comes time for reelection sometimes Folks who feel strongly against syringe service programs may say, well, show me the data that this is doing any good. All I see are more people coming in and out of your door. Have the work to get the information there to show people the value in it. And you can use, you could go to the health department. You could also use some great creative people in an academic institution. There's a lot of MPH, PhDs being written. And these are great topics uh, for a thesis. Great, thank you. Um, there are a couple of comments here just that the Ryan White program does not support linkage to care for hepatitis C for someone that does not have HIV. And that is correct. And, and the Ryan White program by statute, the only really medical service you can provide to someone who does not have, uh, the only medical service you provide to someone that does not have HIV infection is HIV testing. And that's in the law. So once again, as people are thinking about reauthorizing Ryan White, it's a place to do that. There are also a couple of comments here about, um, about this concept of status neutral approach and the fact that the Ryan White program cannot fund a lot of those activities and other people can. And that is why we need to figure out how to blend right. and braid. They, blend did it, and braid. they did it successfully in New York City. Someone had commented on that here too, and that is correct. And we are working, CDC and HERSA are working together. We have a project right now to really provide some TA around that and to get some training to show people how that's been done in other areas. It does take a fair amount of work, um, but we want to help you all be able to do it as seamlessly as you can. And we're also looking at our level to make policy decisions and make our our, our work together so that we're not creating any further barriers beyond right. what already exists legislatively. That's right. And I, I just would add that um, uh, co-location really matters. I mean, there are places where if you can get the um, primary care, the sort of the BIPIC supported entity adjacent to the Ryan White supported entity, you know, it's, it's invisible to the patients what's happening, but you're much more, much more able to blend and braid what's going on. Right. Okay. Well, um, I think that's all we have time for right now. So thank you very much. Great presentation. Thank you. Thank you.